MSW Media. So, Asha, are conservatives on the Supreme Court going to dismantle the regulatory state? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So we got some news yesterday about a case that is going up to SCOTUS. Do you want to tee it up? Sure. So uh, I guess as a starting point, what I'll say is that, as you may or may not be aware, a lot of the things that the government does are not done by Congress, which, let's face it, doesn't pass nearly as many laws as we would like it to pass. Uh, They just are often uh, involved in gridlock or making speeches for Fox News or something along those lines. Um, And and they're not done directly by the president, who's one person after all, but by a very significant regulatory state, right? So many of the things that the government does that we care about, whether it's the FAA regulating uh, aircraft, making sure our aircraft are going to get there at time, or the FDA, um, you know, making sure that our food and drugs are safe, or uh, or uh, the SEC policing the financial markets. All of these things are done by by regulatory uh, bodies that were not really contemplated when the Constitution was uh, first written. Um, that that state, I think, was empowered by a decision that you and I learned in law school, uh, the Chevron decision from 1984, Asha. Um, and the Supreme Court now is going to be considering um, you know, whether or not to change up that doctrine. Very, very significant legally, even if it's not front page news. Right. So as you mentioned, Renato, we have many agencies uh, that are responsible for implementing all kinds of regulations. And by the way, this is really a throwback to admin law, which which we talked about last week and which I told you um, was not my favorite or best class at law school. I had a horrible professor. and to anyone who just accepted their admission to Yale Law School, do not fret because that professor is not there anymore. But um, <laughs> I did brush up on um, Chevron. Uh, and, you know, what's it's really interesting, right? Because Congress can, you know, authorize these agencies, authorize their mission, but it's very hard. I mean, if you've ever worked in a bureaucracy, there are so many nuances and nuts and bolts that go into the practicalities of, um, you know, implementing the Clean Air Act, for example, right? And Congress can't always know or legislate on all the minutiae of that. And so agencies issue their own, they promulgate their own rules, um, that govern how their agency operates. And there's a whole process for this, right? Like when they issue rules, there's, uh, they have to publicly put them out there. They have to invite comment. There's a whole procedure that, uh, that they go through. Um, but really what, what this concerns this, this case is sort of how much discretion an agency has to create rules for the execution of its agency mission or or legislation that pertains to that agency. Is that a fair summation of, of this? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, you know, laws that are created by members of Congress rarely contemplate uh, every situation that comes up and, and things change. Uh, you know, I literally, I'm, if you're watching YouTube, you'll see that I'm in a suit cause I was just giving a presentation to, you know, dozens of, of high level executives at a, at a company about rules that have been promulgated and regulations that have been promulgated by the SEC and some organizations associated with the SEC. And it's very, it, it those, the, you know, the, 
they companies hire people like me to help them understand all of these because they ultimately follow these rules just as if they were they were laws that were passed by Congress. And this is what enables our government to be able to um, react to changing situations and to take into account expertise, right? You know, let's face it, Congress uh, doesn't always reflect uh, the the highest understanding of things. So when there's a, let's say, a pandemic, the CDC um, will already have, um, you know, various rules that'll be prepared, that, that it will have drawn up uh, in advance and will have a, a whole framework that they will uh, they will have. So I think this this case is really about the deference that courts show to um, to um, to agencies uh, when it's not clear what Congress uh, wants done in terms of you know what they've actually written in law. Right. So this is known as the Chevron Doctrine, and the idea is that courts will defer to agency rules where Congress has been silent on that particular issue or ambiguous, as long as the agency's interpretation is reasonable. In other words, they're they're going to defer to uh, the agency kind of construing um, legislation pertaining to its area of expertise with with broad, with a lot of deference um as long as they they have a way, a way to justify their when when congress has not spoken on that particular issue right and as a practice so as a practical matter that really gives agencies very wide range so that they know that they can enforce those rules those regulations and not worry about litigation from people like me let's say in other words you know companies that, you know if if the way it, if if you had a different rule let's just say if there was not a deference that was shown to agencies you can imagine that let's just say the SEC tells Wall Street here's the rules of the road like you've got to do xyz when it comes to crypto or when it comes to the issuance of new stock or something along those lines and a company doesn't like it or they think they'd make more money with a different rule, they could just litigate and fight that in the courts. There's a lot less litigation now. What what there is is companies hiring lawyers to understand the rules, explain to them, explain the rules to them, or to convince the agency they have a rulemaking process usually where as new regulations are promulgated that, that, that comments can be offered. And all of that's done because it ultimately, the agencies are empowered by this decision to be the regulator. Without Chevron deference, what you'd probably have to, you'd see is you'd need either Congress, you know, to you would likely need Congress to take up the slack there and to do more via via legislation. And I, I think that's it's fair to say that that's not realistic. Right. And so just to get to the case that's coming before the Supreme Court, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. And this concerns the National Marine Fisheries Service, the NMFS, um, which basically federal fishery law um, allows this service, this agency, to um, require fishing boats to carry federal monitors. And the regulation that's at issue here is that the agency issued another rule that requires the boats that are carrying these federal monitors to pay for them. And so the the owners of these boats are saying, you know, this rule that requires us to pay for these federal monitors, which law requires us to, you know, have on board if the agency says so, um, is beyond the agency's scope. Like they can't be beyond the agency's authority to mandate. Um, and what this will effectively get to, this raises the issue of whether the, like under ordinary Chevron deference, what the court would look at is, is this a reasonable interpretation of the more specific law that says, you know, that they can require federal monitors can, is there a reasonable basis to say that then the agency can require them to pay for it? Um, to the the actual questioning of the underlying deference itself. 
Yeah, I think what we don't really know yet is exactly, I think it's fair to say, the the, the breadth or the scope of the decision, right? I mean, I don't think it's likely, Asha, that we're going to have like a complete undoing of Chevron where suddenly now agencies are going to be SOL. You know, they basically, uh, you know, are going to be having to litigate every time that they have a regulation. Um, but I do think um, there's definitely going to be some change. And I, it's, it's this is one of these topics that is, I would say, important but not sexy. In other words, this is, some, this is probably the sort of thing that impacts the lives of the people listening to this podcast more than almost anything we've talked about. Um, but and yet we don't know what the outcome is. I think it's totally up in the air. And one thing that we haven't discussed, but I think is important to note is um, Judge Jackson, or Justice Jackson, excuse me, will be recusing, has recused herself uh, because I believe she heard a prior uh, she case. She heard the oral right? argument. When she yeah. before she was elevated to the court, yeah, before she was elevated to the Supreme Court. So there's eight justices. Obviously, that means you could have a four-four decision, but it also, I think, means that uh, conservatives are going to be the majority here by a, a very even more than usual, very substantial margin. Um, and it, you know, it's fair to say that traditional conservatives, not what we see on Fox News, but people who are more traditional legal conservatives, the Federal Society and so on, have been very critical about the extent of the regulatory state. And it wouldn't be surprising to see them make it harder for government to do its job. Yeah. And to your original point on the scope of what the court is deciding, um, the people who are the fishing companies had basically presented the court with sort of two um, different options. One was to overrule Chevron, which, as you said, would be a huge, basically, um, overturning of, of 40 years of, of, of jurisprudence, um, or to address the narrower question of whether, when Congress does not address, quote, controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statute. In other words, when they've touched on a topic, so you know they've considered it, but haven't granted the power that the agency's exercising in that area right then, um, whether deference is required. And according to the SCOTUS blog, the justices agree to take up that second narrower question. Um, And so, and I think you're right that, you know, there... I mean, there's a lot of different approaches to this, I think. Um, But, you know, if you're really looking at this idea that Congress makes the laws, right? I think this is sort of what it gets to is this really fundamental separation of powers idea that Congress makes the laws and where Congress, you know, is silent to allow essentially the executive branch to... um, make stuff up as it goes along uh, is sort of a form of lawmaking, I think, is really where the tension is of kind of trying to hew back um, executive power. And, you know, which and I, and I think you're right that it looks like there are several conservative justices who have questioned that expansive deference that has traditionally been given to these agencies in this arena. Yeah. And even when Congress doesn't intend for there to be a lot of questions left open to agencies, there inevitably are. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, right now, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about how crypto is regulated. We did some some uh, shows about those or some some podcasts about those early on. And, you know, there wasn't a, an intention necessarily by Congress to say, OK, we're not going to say anything about crypto regulation. But crypto developed out of nowhere, and there's going to be additional things that are going to develop, whether it's AI or other sorts of technologies. And Congress won't anticipate necessarily the rise of those technologies or new developments. And until Congress acts, and you know, who knows when Congress will get its act together, let's say in crypto or an AI or other things, it's really up to the agencies to fill in those gaps. And that, there's a lot of that's a very those are very obvious big examples, but there's lots of small ones. Um, and and ultimate, uh, ultimately, uh, this is the sort of thing that, you know, th- there's no originalism, you know, people talk about originalism or, uh, original intent. 
the, the framers, the Constitution never considered any of this, right? The regulatory state didn't exist, was not in anyone's imagination at the time of the Constitution. So there's a lot of room for the justices to determine what they think the proper amount of deference should be. Yeah. And I'd like to point out, Renato, I was reviewing the original Chevron case, and I think it's really interesting that that case arises in an instance where the agency, in that case, the Environmental Protection Agency, was actually trying to accommodate business interests, right? Like they were trying to implement the Clean Air Act, but trying to uh, interpret some legislation broadly to essentially allow companies to still comply with pollution standards while, you know, um, and, and implement new technologies. And that lawsuit was brought by the NRDC, the National Resources Defense Council, saying, no, they can't, they can't interpret the rule this way to give, you know, they, they should, they need to be stricter with these companies. And the court in that case, um, deferred and basically the opinion says, you know, when this was created and, whatever, the 1977 or the uh, Clean Air Act, you know, that, that Congress didn't define this or didn't anticipate some of this other stuff. And, you know, that that uh, these agencies, that the EPA needs to be able to further the general thrust of that legislation, but do it in a way that sort of takes into account circumstances on the ground. But I just thought it was really interesting that that particular case was, you know, a quote-unquote more progressive um, plaintiff challenging sort of the agency accommodating business interests, um, given that, you know, now we're, we're looking at a, a situation where it's the business interests that are challenging the, the agency. Yeah, often it's the, the way in which the law gets created is different from how it is in that particular case, right? And not surprising that in the Reagan administration that there are pro-business interests in terms of what regula regulators wanted to do, but and ultimately a decision though that gave latitude to regulators. Uh, and like you said, it's 40, a 40 year old decision at this point. We basically are in, almost in our entire lives, right? This decision has been in place um, that, you know, it is given rise to, I'd say a stronger regulatory state, but it's, just, it's, it's something that I think is uh, a kind of part of a broader issue, which is just that, you know, ultimately we live in a very complex uh, world. And it's fair to say that the 435 people in the House and the 100 people in the Senate um, are generalists, uh, to put it kindly. Are, I don't know what, you know, politicians who are elected by people, they are our representatives, but they just, they, they lack the expertise and the time to deal with every one of these situations like the implementation of the Clean Air Act. And so there's always a reliance on expertise. And I think you know, this case is going to determine the balance of how that how that ultimately um, is done in the future and the latitude given uh, to government to regulate. And if we end up in a situation where um, there is less latitude that's given to regulatory agencies, um, I think it's ultimately going to do more to reduce the scope of the federal government than any of Donald Trump's efforts to, for example, you know, fire, uh, you know, long, you know, long-term career employees. Yeah. Because I think the practical effect here, even if the court is looking at this very narrow question is a potential to really paralyze the operation of at least some of the functions of these agencies, right? Like they hit a point where there's an unresolved question and they're not able to issue a rule, I suppose that if the court goes down this road, the only remedy would be that Congress would need to l explicitly legislate um, on on these points or explicitly delegate authority to do very specific things, um, which seems to me to be unrealistic, both in terms of congressional imagination, um, to always have to imagine, you know, ahead of time. Um, or, you know, the, in a, yeah, the, like just to, to have to do that. And, and as you mentioned, just the general gridlock that we have on getting legislation passed at all. Right. And it's also obviously a process that's infected by money and, and influence, right? So, you know, just to, to help everyone understand and make it very um, crystal clear, 
what I mean might change if just let's say there's a rule change. Let's just say that the deference given is much lower to an agency, right? Right now, if a com- let's say a company is being regulated by the SEC, they know that ultimately challenging the SEC's regulations is going, you know, in court is going to be basically a pointless exercise given the deference that's given to the SEC. But if that deference is far lower, suddenly it may be in the interests of whatever, banks, broker dealers, others in that space to say, okay, we're going to hire expensive lawyers to litigate against the SEC. And you may say, well, maybe if the SEC is doing a great job, maybe they shouldn't be scared of what's going to happen in court. However, what that means, though, is that what the what the SEC is going to have to consider before it implements a rule is, A, the cost of fighting a court, right, the resources that are going to be put towards that. Instead of enforcing the law, enforcing rules, they're going to have to spend that money litigating against companies. But second of all, the people doing the litigating, often that's going to be skewed based on who has resources as well, right? A large bank's going to have more resources than a public interest group to litigate about rules, particularly ones that impact how banks function and how they're regulated. So what can happen ultimately is regulator potentially pulls their punches, is not as aggressive in their rulemaking because they know that in the end of the day, um, the people that they're regulating are going to be litigating against them. And so that's the impact of this. And you can argue it it both ways, but the ultimate impact uh, is going to be um, to give less power to regulators uh, and make it more difficult uh, for them to, I think, uh, you know, you know, uh, and, and less flexibility to impose rules that ultimately, uh, the, you know, the, the rest of the world has to, or the rest of the country has to abide by. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-row anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Renato, last week we talked about the civil lawsuit brought by Eugene Carroll against Donald Trump for battery and defamation. And last week, I think, on this day, the jury was being seated, but we've had some developments in court since then. And I'm interested in your take as a litigator on what you, on how you think it's going. Well, it's actually going about as poorly for Trump as you could imagine, which is interesting. So I, I will just, uh, you know, confess that I have actually, I've represented uh, sexual assault victims in the past in fact, I had a case that I brought in the Southern District of New York uh, for money damages, very similar to the uh, case here. I mean, not not similar in the fact that I the the other the other party was not the president, the former president of the United States, but nonetheless, um, very you know similar fact pattern in a certain respect. Um, and, and I think that there there are issues with this case from a factual perspective. Okay, there were weaknesses that a litigator could exploit. Right, this obviously happened decades ago. Um, there it's, there's a, he said, she said element to it, which was the case with, with my, the case I brought as well. I mean, that's very common. I think it's fair to say in these cases, because men who are trying to commit a violent crime, don't wait for witnesses to be there, right? They're not, they're not looking for situations for, for where they can, there can be evidence that, that is used against them. But nonetheless, there are, there were things, you know, there were certainly, I think it's fair to say E. Jean Carroll was a public figure herself who, you know, had a, said, said a lot of things publicly, just like um, uh, a lot of us who are speaking in the in public spaces. You know, you, it's easy to pick apart the social media posts. She was an advice columnist. Right. For a major magazine. So, I mean, she has just all sorts of things that the other side could pick apart. However, you know, the way that the trial has unfolded has been about as bad for Trump as you can imagine. And I think it comes down to a few things. One of which I think is it's fair to say that the choice of attorneys has really, really been a disaster for Trump. You know, we've talked a lot, and I think a lot of our listeners have understood that Trump's legal team are, are not exactly the A team, okay, of uh, of the legal world. 
But often it is not really directly hurt Trump because prosecutors are out there doing their investigating and it's a challenging to bring a case and the standards are very high and there hasn't been like a trial yet. And so you really haven't seen the quality difference. But in this case, it's fair to say that E. Jean Carroll has some of the best lawyers in Manhattan, uh, particularly for this type of case, handling the matter. Roberta Kaplan is, she's a fantastic uh, lawyer. I don't think, I, I just don't, I don't think that's deniable. Even if you're a critic, uh, 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 she's, she, she's a very um, impressive litigator. Uh, and her whole team, by the way, is full of impressive litigators. And uh, on the other side, uh, Trump's uh, team has been led by Taco Pina, uh, Mr. Taco Pina, who we've all, I think, seen on television. And, and I think it's fair to say, I don't think I'm being uh, unfair to say that he does not have the personality or the mentality that you would want to have uh, for a case like this. And wh what I mean by that is when you are handling a case of this type, it is a sensitive topic. And particularly if you're opposing, I, I haven't had a case where I was opposing a, a sexual assault victim. In other words, I used to prosecute cases where people were victimized and then I brought them on behalf of, uh, you know, uh, let's say in this in the case in Southern District, a woman who was sexually assaulted. But I never have been on the other side. But when you are on the other side, you have to be very cognizant of the fact that even if the jury doesn't 100 percent believe or they're not sure what to believe, they're going to have a lot of sympathy for the person in that situation, in this case, E. Jean Carroll. And Taco Pina is a boorish, larger than life, big personality, aggressive man. And he does not know how to dial that back. And, and so I think having him handle the questioning of E. Jean Carroll uh, for, in particular was a major, major mistake because, he, you know, when you are a, 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 a large, aggressive man, you actually – you have to dial it back even more um, if you're going to be conducting that cross-examination. He just hasn't done it. He's looked like he's beating up on her. And I think the jury is going to be sympathetic to her as a result. Yeah. So two observations slash questions. One, it seems like in that respect, what you're talking about, we've come a long way, right? In terms of you know, I remember when we were growing up, do you remember the Jodie Foster movie, The Accused? Mm, yes. Yeah. Which kind of was one of the first like movies that raised, you know, sort of awareness or put a spotlight on the challenges of trying to hold perpetrators of sexual assault to account. And, you know, they there's a whole scene where she goes to court and she's just badgered and, you know, about what she's wearing. And, you know, and it was, this is like in the 80s, I think. Um, you know, and it's a, sort of this idea that that's to be expected. And you, I remember that, you know, I think the jury is kind of looking at her really skeptically, like, yeah, what were you wearing? And all this stuff. And, you know, I think that our you know, public attitudes, awareness has definitely evolved, certainly since Me Too, to where, you know, if 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 Jody if that Jodie Foster movie was suggesting that the jury would be more likely to sympathize with the cross examiner, the um the lawyer, uh they're they're more likely now to be sympathetic to the defendant to that, especially to those types of lines of questioning, like what were you doing and what did you ask for and all that stuff? Yes. What did you say about Trump later? I mean, a lot of his questions, why did you report it right away? You know, which does not happen in many cases, right? Um, in, you know, in terms of, I, I, you know, I, and, you know, when it does happen and many times it's the exception rather than the rule when somebody immediately goes to law enforcement and in this particular circumstance, this particular type of case, um, you know, in, the, in, you know, kind of picking apart her statements and her actions and putting her a bit on trial, trying to make this about judging her actions versus judging Trump's. What I would say, you know, is I, you're a hundred percent right. In fact, you know, one telling, uh, uh episode during the trial, Asha, is clearly Mr. Takopina had heard of some of the criticism and he actually asked a question of her, which drew an objection, but he was trying to introduce, he was through his question trying to introduce the point. He, he asked her essentially, do you, you know that I'm not trying to judge the response of a sexual assault victim, right? You know, that sort of thing. 
And, and the fact that he asked that just showed that he was aware of the criticism out there. I think that's important. And, you know, I will say that, you know, it's fair. It's, I think she would not, E. Jean Carroll would not have received this sort of a trial 20 plus years ago when this incident allegedly occurred. I think it's fair to say that particularly the Me Too movement, I think people ask whether activist activism can matter. I mean, that is an, a great example of how a lot of activists and ordinary people have dramatically changed their understanding and changed, by the way, how real world uh, trials are conducted. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say, you know, I, I mentioned some of the challenges with the case. I do think it's a very challenging case for the plaintiff. Uh, and ordinarily, I'd say if this was Jane Doe versus John Doe um, in a neutral courtroom with neutral lawyers, I think it would be a, a, a case where our, uh, I think there'd be a, an uphill battle for the plaintiff. But um, I think that the fact that Mr. Tacopina has maybe got a 1980s playbook um, and, and some of the other issues with the case, I mean, I think it's fair to say um, that Trump not being there is another thing that I think has an impact. I mean, Trump has decided that he's not, that, you know, he's not appearing in court. Um, and I think the the jury is going to understand Understandably, think of that as him not taking this seriously. Um, and the judge is clearly um, not happy with uh, Trump's team. And I think, you know, they, they did a long winded motion uh, the mm -hmm. other day, basically trying to listing all their grievances with the judge, which the judge denied. I actually thought it was a good legal strategy because they were basically sending a shot across the bow to the judge that there might be appellate issues to try to get the judge to move a little bit their way. They accuse the judge of being too, of being biased in favor of, of Eugene Carroll. One thing I'm just going to say is somebody's tried a lot of cases. Judges usually do have an opinion about the way the case goes and it does impact how they call balls and strikes in terms of evidentiary rulings. And you want to be the one who convinces the judge that your case is better. And it happens, works both ways. Okay. I've had criminal cases where I convinced the judge that my client was innocent and the judge was giving me some rulings there. Okay. And I think here the judge thinks it clearly is convinced that Trump's team is full of it and has not been above board and is giving them some tough rulings. And, and the judge, um, uh, Lou Kaplan knows well enough, who's been on the bench a long time, that the, that he's not going to get overruled by the Second Circuit on any of this, uh, the, the Court of Appeals over, over overseeing the case. And so he he's using the latitude he has, and that, that motion was in a shot across the bow saying, hey, refs, like it's when the, if you're watching a sports game, the, they're complaining to the refs. It's like, it's like that, you know, you're not going to change. You can't get rid of the refs, so you're complaining and whatever. But but the bottom line is, I think this this trial is going very poorly for Donald Trump, and it's really um, creating a risk. Obviously, it's just a money damages case; it's a civil case, not a criminal case. But it's creating a risk to Trump that I think, if he had better lawyers and handled it differently and took it more seriously, wouldn't be there. Yeah. So, which brings me to the the second observation slash question, because this team also has another lawyer on it, right? Alina Haba is also sure. here. And I have to wonder whether, especially given, um, I think boorish is probably the best uh, adjective you use that one for Takapina. Like, why wouldn't they, like, it seems like the good strategy is to have a woman do the questioning. Like, I, just at a very basic level, like, even if you're going to go down this line of questioning, there's a little bit less, both just in terms of perception and how it um, lands on a juror viscerally and, and emotionally. And I'm wondering, you know, whether that's a Trump-driven decision, either either explicitly or they understand that Trump would want to attack this person and use that cudgel. And he like like, I think Trump likes Takapina's demeanor. He wants him, him in there mm -hmm. grilling her because he sees the lawyer as he sees him as an extension of himself. Right. Um, and I think if Alina had been the one doing it, he would see that as weak, like not going hard enough. What do you think about that? Well, it's a super interesting observation, Ash. That very well may be the case. You know, what I would say is I agree with you that having a woman conduct the questioning, particularly someone who could modulate, had like a high EQ, um, and it was very important for trial lawyer, who can modulate 
you know, her, um, her attitude towards the question towards the witness. I think, yeah, I think that would make a lot more sense. It would give the questioner a lot more latitude in terms of the types of questions that they, they could ask. Right. Um, that would make a lot of sense. I think that it's possible. I, I agree with you that that's one possible way this went is that Trump's like, take her down, destroy her, et cetera. Um, and, and it very well may be a client driven thing to use a lawyer's way of thinking about it. It may be driven by what the client wants. There may be other explanations as well. I mean, one thing that I'll say to use a, a reference from Taken uh, is that uh, being a trial lawyer requires a particular set of skills. Um, in other words, there's a certain uh, there's a certain um, experience that's required to be a trial lawyer. It's not something you do. Um, you know, it, it's, it's like being a surgeon or something. You don't want somebody to like learn on the job, uh, how to cut open your abdomen and, and take out your gallbladder or something. It, it's a very, very challenging thing to do. And it requires a lot of practice. And I don't know if Alina Hobb has ever tried a case in her life. Um, it's fair to say from her questioning on television and in other, other contexts, she doesn't strike me like the best lawyer on earth. Now, Takapita also, uh, boorish, I use that word purposely. I do agree that that describes him to a T. Uh, but Mr. Takapina does appear to know his way around a courtroom. He's just, he's a lawyer that is best, uh, for, uh, utilize at a different kind of case at best. I, I don't know how to, yeah. I'm more kindly to say it than that. Um, so I, I think that's another thing. I mean, if, if I was making the decisions in this case, you know, uh, and I was, you know, running the matter, uh, I would, I don't know if I'd have Hobb handle the questioning. I think it shows a weakness of, of the team and who he hired. He may not have the choice to hire better people. Right. She right? doesn't have the skills. I mean, I think you're right. Yeah. Like cross-examination in particular is really hard, right? Because oh, you yeah. you have to lead the witness to the answers that that you want and have them in the course of giving adversarial questioning tell the story that you want to tell. So I and I I can imagine that, you know, I'm not I'm not that I don't even have to imagine it. You don't want somebody who doesn't have that practice skill, that craft um getting up there and just sabotaging the whole case. Yeah, because you can lose the case. So with a case like this, right? I mean, ultimately the 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 allegations that are that Eugene Carroll entered a decided to enter a dressing room with Donald Trump and he attempted to assault her inside the dressing room at a department store in New York. That's the bottom line. And ultimately her testimony can either make or break the entire case, right? I mean, especially if Trump doesn't testify live, the cross and examination of her is in many ways the whole case. And so, of course, um, that's super important. And I just think that no client would want to risk having someone learn on the job. You'd need to have somebody who's extremely experienced. I mean, I've cross-examined many witnesses and it's just something that takes a lot of experience to get to get good at. So I could see that, but this is the example of, you know, there are many, many lawyers in the United States um, who are more qualified than Takapina, probably thousands and thousands and thousands of lawyers would be a better choice. But this is who a supposed billionaire who is the former president of the United States is left with. And it's interesting to me, Asha, because in the Man Manhattan DA case, he actually has a very qualified lawyer, a very good lawyer on that case. And I don't know, to go back to, you know, your suggestion, the client thing is, is this because he doesn't take this case seriously or because this is the only lawyer he could get? And I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that question. Well, we will see. And as to, to underscore on the he said, she said point, um, the jury does not need to find this beyond a reasonable doubt. They need to find by a preponderance of the evidence that he assaulted and, and defamed her. Um, and do you think in, in light of that, is this going in her direction? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think if this was Jane Doe versus John Doe, and the defense was represented by Roberta Kaplan and the plaintiff was represented by Mr. Tacopina. I think the plaintiff uh, would likely lose this one. And this case, so you think it's Carol all would... lawyering here? Well, it's not just lawyering. It's who the people are. I mean, Donald Trump's actions and activity. First of all, he's not the most popular person in Manhattan to begin with. Mm -hmm. And he didn't, you know, he is, 
you know, he took unreasonable positions during the litigation. He didn't not even showing up for trial. Right. If Eugene Carroll was in the opposite, if, if you flipped it or if you had an ordinary person, right, if one or you or I were in this situation, we would be in court and we would be showing the jury on a daily basis how distressed we were to be there. We would take the stand ourselves. Right. And show the jury that we're abhorred that someone would accuse us of that because we you or I would never commit a violent crime of that type um, and a horrific crime. Because uh, that is, I mean, it's not a criminal case, but it's a crime, right? It's an awful violation. So we would never do that. But he's not there doing that. And he's, he's examining not... his golf properties in Scotland. Right. And so I just think all of that is making it very, very hard for the defense. And so you had a case where there was actually a potentially a winnable case for Trump that through his own actions and who he is, but also his law, the awful lawyering, um, is, you know, the, I think they're snatching uh, a defeat from the jaws of victory. Last question. If E. Jean Carroll does win, what's going to be the remedy here? Just money? Money damages. Yep. Which is why, you know, you have to wonder and scratch your head why, you know, why weren't there more extensive settlement conversations? Um, I, I know that there was some comment. I actually, we got a comment from a listener mm -hmm. about a retraction. I mean, I will just say that um, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head whether she's asked for uh, some sort of retraction or not, but that would rarely actually drive a case like this. In other words, you're being sued for millions of dollars, you're going to trial, and if the defense is offering to pay the amount of money owed, like it's very unlikely that that either the plaintiff's going to insist, oh, yeah, we're going to go to trial because you're not going to say put out some statement, or that a judge is going to allow that to happen. Like if it ultimately uh, there's just a disagreement about that's at words. I, I just think a judge is going to push the parties to settle. Uh, I understand this kind of goes back to a point we made with Fox and Dominion where people are like, well, why doesn't Dominion like, you know, going forward to get Fox to say they're sorry or something. That's just not the real world and how they've the massive expense of works. And isn't the de defamation claim sort of, I mean, it's sort of a outgrowth of, the decision on whether he committed the battery. Correct. In other words, like if as a matter of law, a jury concludes that he more likely than not assaulted her, then his statements to the effect that he didn't are lies. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think what would vindicate her, right, is what she wants is a jury finding that this happened, right? I mean, that's that's mm -hmm. that she was victimized. That's what I think in her situation would be. That speaks volumes. By the way, I mean, another I will call Pyrrhic victory uh, would be like if most of the jurors think that, but not all, right? You know, you know, not, there's not a unanimity among the jury. Which is the sort of result, by the way, that very well could have been achieved if, if you had different lawyers and different a, a different person on the other side of of the of the uh, equation. Um, but even even in that circumstance, that may be worth it to her, right? To have a sort of public statement like, "Hey, you know, the majority of the people here agreed with her." For sure. So, Asha, um, I uh, t turning to a lighter subject. I, you can't can't get any heavier than uh, than the subject we were just talking about. Um, so, I, I have been. I am. I, I don't know if uh, if you are, but I am a huge sports fan. So, I have been uh, watching the NBA playoffs uh, big time. I've been. I actually took my stepdaughter to a White Sox game and. They've been absolutely horrible this year, but I'm a big White Sox fan. Uh, are you uh, doing any uh, sports watching this season? Um, well, I did watch the Princeton games during March Madness. True. I remember and that. I was very proud of myself for that. Um, last week, I did watch like the first hour of the NFL draft. Was there, was there a gun at your head during, no. that, <laughs> uh, during that draft? Um, my boyfriend was watching it. And so uh, I, I tried to pay attention and be a good student and learn, but it was super boring actually. And he told me that it goes on for like three days. It is super long. It's super long. That's one of the things NFL draft. There's, there's a lot of players on an NFL team. There's 11 on both sides and they're different players. Whereas let's say in basketball, you have the five, same five people on both, both ends of the court. Um, so yeah, there's like a ton of, a ton of rounds. Now um, White Sox is, 
Baseball. Baseball, yes. Uh-huh. I like, uh huh. They're not I very like good baseball. this year. You do, yeah. Baseball. You know what's nice about baseball is for it's people. It's just kind of cash. It's like you just chill out. Yeah, like you don't have great. to pay attention like the whole time. Right. So for people who are not super <laughs> sports fans, baseball is great if you go to the game because the atmosphere is fun and there's food and entertainment and this and that. And if you there's very little action that to miss. They've tried to speed it up, but it's sort of a nice background if you just want to have a conversation. Um, you know, my, my stepdaughter's not super into the game, but likes the idea of being there and gets. Yeah, I think, it. I mean, I, I don't think I would watch baseball on TV, but I do really like the atmosphere of going to a game in person. When I lived in Baltimore, um, after my first year of law school, I was working at the Baltimore U.S. Attorney's Office and, um, I just, I lived a couple of blocks from Camden Yards and I would pass Camden Yards every day on my way to work and, um, the office got tickets for us to go to a few games. It's a beautiful park. Um, and I, I had a lot of fun. And like I said, you don't have to pay a lot of attention. You know, you can eat food, you can chill out. It just, I don't know, you can kind of leave whenever you want. Um, I also like basketball because it's the opposite. It's very fast paced. There's stuff, you know, it requires you to pay attention, but it's also like rewarding because you, Things happen and you get kind of worked up. I feel like football is like the worst of both worlds. Oh, wow. Because you it's have to kind of sport. like, I know, but it's like you have to watch what's going on. But all like it's just a bunch of everybody just like jumps on top of each other in a big mass. I, I can't tell what's going on. You can't just relax. Um, but and it also moves sort of slow. That's interesting. I view football as fast moving, but not as fast as as basketball. I, I look, I'm biased. I was, I grew up in the eighties and nineties in in the Chicago area. So Michael Jordan was playing for the Chicago Bulls at the time. So I'm always going to be a major NBA fan. Um, but I don't know. I do. I do enjoy watching football, but the bears have been so bad for so long. So I, it's it's fallen down my list. Uh, this year, the White Sox are so bad that um, maybe I won't be going to more baseball games. We were actually up three to zero, and I think the seventh inning, and we, we had no hitter going into the seventh inning, and we were all excited. And then they scored like ten runs in the seventh. Oh, really? Uh, the other side did. Yeah, the other oh. we just get destroyed. And so um, we, we, we like, we left early. Like my stepdaughter's like, okay, this is just, it was like one of those, when there's a seat, when you're driving uh, and you don't want to see the, the crash, it's yeah. sort, of, sort of like that. You got to look away. Yeah. Um, it was that bad. What about so, soccer? I've never gotten into soccer. And that's an interesting thing. It's like, whenever I go overseas, like that's like the biggest thing. I think it's growing in the U.S. Um mm-hmm. I played it when I was a kid, but I never got into watching it. Have you ever gotten into soccer? I mean, I'm semi, right? Like, I mean, it takes so much skill and there is something like, you know, just watching them soccer players, really good soccer players play is like, it's kind of amazing to see what they can do and how fast they're moving and dribbling the ball and all this kind of stuff. Like it's not, to me, it's more... um, I can appreciate the skill more than say football, right? Which like I said, it's like, throw the ball and then the person's tackled. Like, <laughs> um, on the other hand, there are so few goals. It's like, takes forever. Yeah. I was going to so say, it's sort of like, if you like didn't the, like, if you think it's like baseball, more like baseball, yes, like, you know, it's just like, Oh my God, like somebody, ball around yes. and nothing happens. It's like, if you, if you get an early lead, then you play defensively the rest of the game. And so they're just trying to like prevent the other side from scoring a goal, which can get super boring. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't what know. What about hockey? I, yeah, I got into that a little bit with Blackhawks were good for a while here. So I'm, as I'm a Chicagoan. So well, when the Blackhawks are winning Stanley Cups is cool. I, I go to games. My my wife really likes the uh uh the action with the mm-hmm. uh with the game. I, I'm not as bad I just never because I didn't grow up. It's kind of violent. Yeah. And you know, I got a candidly when I was a kid, the tickets were, um, it wasn't as televised as much and the tickets were expensive, I think, or harder mm-hmm. to get. And so that's why I got into baseball. The White Sox tickets were cheap when we, uh, my family, when I could easily get, get those. And you know, it's not that expensive to get into a game. And so that you made know, it easier to be a baseball I, fan. As someone who's not a huge sports fan, um, I did kind of as a way to educate myself, got at some point, this is a while ago, the entire 
or, or a 100 episode library of ESPN's 30 for 30. Oh, wow. Seriously? That's a yeah. lot of dedication. I actually love that series. And I, it, really it's actually really films. good. Like it's a good way to kind of learn about sports or people in them in way in kind of, through stories that are, right. um, are interesting. And I think the first one was about Wayne Gretzky and that was, I forget what exactly the story was, but he like got married and moved to LA. I think that's the, how I remember it. <laughs> and people were really upset. Um, and there was another one about the Baltimore Orioles band that, you know, was really big. And then somehow the team dissolved and, you know, the band was really sad and then got reconstituted. There's one about the Baltimore Al- Colts that went to the Baltimore Colts. Yes. Yes. Uh, Orioles is baseball. Baseball. They're still okay, around. Sorry. I was like, they haven't been dissolved, sorry. but yeah. Um, and then there was one actually about my hometown, Alan Iverson, yeah, uh, basketball good. player who, uh, actually was, um, one year below me in high school. Um, and Wait, he's from your hometown. He is from my hometown. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah, I, I, cheered, my hometown, I was the a cheerleader is at Parker. games where Alan Iverson played. So he, um, he played for Bethel High School, I believe, and I went to Kickatan High School. Um, and he he was an amazing basketball player even then. But it was really interesting. That particular episode of 30 for 30 really went into um, the very complicated racial mm-hmm. history of my hometown. And that was kind of very illuminating for me. Yeah, look, sports are a way, I think, you know, people denigrate them. I know, you know, Noam Chomsky and others attack sports, but I actually think that sports are a great way for, I think, for people to come together and feel a connection that they don't otherwise mm-hmm. feel, right? I feel kindred, uh, kind of a kindred spirit with other White Sox fans or, or you know, Bulls fans or things and like that. And that cross cut across other types of cleavages. I agree with you. Yeah, um, it's and, a big thing. Yeah, and it's really important because you know, I teach about social trust, um, and how that intersects with like the healthy democracy. Um, and those types of cross cutting connections of feeling connected to people you don't know, um, and kind of having their backs is like really important. And just to bring this full circle, you mentioned that at the last White Sox game you went to, you lost your wallet and someone returned it with the cash. And I yeah, think that's I drove a, I back think yesterday to the park to pick it up. I was shocked when I got the phone call and it had all, not only all my cards and everything, but it had the cash in it. I mean, I was prepared for having, I was getting, I already put holds on my cards and I was going to be getting new driver's license and all of the other things that I have in my wallet. Um, and no, they found, you know, somebody turned it in and like I said, yeah, I had all the cash and everything. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I, it, it just goes to show. I, kudos to White Sox fan, the White Sox fan who uh, who turned it in. But that 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 goes to show, right? The point. That it's you're a, it's an example of generalized social trust. There you go. M-S-W-Media.